Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hello, uh, welcome to a special Christmas edition of The Neutral Ground. Uh, This week we'll be talking to Andrea Gallo, our Capitol reporter who's been investigating conflicts of interest in the legislature as well as what legislators go on to do with themselves after they leave the uh, Capitol. And sometimes they don't leave the Capitol. Uh, Then we'll talk to business writer Ricky Thompson about his latest story on the first NBC bank meltdown. And last, we'll sit down with food writer Ian McNulty, who's going to talk about some of the stories that warmed his heart this year. Um, Thanks for joining us. And uh, first up is Andrea. Andrea, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, uh, Andrea, you've been investigating the legislature and specifically sort of conflicts of interest and ethics violations and that sort of thing for the better part of a year, along with uh, Rebecca Allen in a project we've been doing with ProPublica. Um, your latest story on this was published today, uh, was published this week, I should say, um, on the revolving door at the Capitol. And tell us sort of what you were looking into and what you found out. So the question that we wanted to answer when we started all of this was whether there truly was a revolving door at the Louisiana legislature in which former lobbyists would return, or former lawmakers, I should say, would return um, in the form of lobbyists or as state agency executives or any of those roles. So what we did was we tracked every person who has left the legislature, some term limited out, some lost elections, others left for personal reasons, but we tracked every person who left the legislature between 2010 and the elections um, in November of this year. And there were 99 who left, and we found that 35 of those people either became lobbyists or state agency executives or um, legislative board appointments or some sort of uh, they took on roles where they were still influencing the legislature. So uh, to answer the original question, the revolving door definitely does exist. So this is, you know, we're in an era of term limits, of course, and the idea behind term limits was sort of to constantly have new blood in the capital and not to have the same old gang uh, of people running things. And not to say that 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 necessarily is the case, but this sort of shows that that some people don't go away. In other words, some of these people just find a new a new way to uh, remain influential in state government. Is that fair? For sure. And um, it's interesting because some of the people who we talked to for this story said that term limits, make uh, the jobs of lobbyists all the more needed and all the more relevant because um, legislators don't have a long enough time to kind of learn the ropes without lobbyists helping them. Then again, others, you know, think that term limits are a a great thing that were very much needed in the state. So there's an argument that, so lobbyists, in other words, there's not that much institutional knowledge in the legislature anymore, certainly not as much as there used to be. And so lobbyists and other people outside of the body are sometimes more influential than they were before. Right. So your story was fascinating, tracked sort of some of the 
ways in which these people who used to be lawmakers come back to influence the legislature or uh, or others in the Capitol. But um, uh, let's take a minute to listen to some sound of how the former House Speaker Jim Tucker was greeted on a recent visit there. Before he leaves, uh, Mr. Tucker, I, I, I just want to, you know, I know he's here in a different capacity, but it's the former speaker from Elgis, the West Bank. And I certainly want to welcome him to the committee. Thank you for your good work, sir. All right, Representative Zarang. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm proposing an amendment to... Okay, so, so what did we just hear there, Andrea? We were listening to Jim Tucker, who is the former Speaker of the House, um, talk about the nursing home industry. Whenever Mr. Tucker left the legislature a few years later, he became the CEO of a nursing home nonprofit in Louisiana called ComCare. And in the recording that we were listening to, a current state representative, Rick Edmonds, tried to amend the state budget to make way for less institutionalizing of elderly people and disabled people, landing them in nursing homes and more home and community-based services. Um, But former Speaker Tucker advocated against that. And in the recording, you can hear him talk about you know, the effect that it would have on the nursing home industry mm-hmm. if that would have happened. And as we've written uh, quite a bit about the nursing home industry enjoys a lot of influence in the capital. And as your story outlined, uh, Tucker is not the only former legislator who's now working on behalf of this industry or who is involved in this industry, sort of helping to keep the status quo in place. Right. It's interesting because the nursing home industry has attracted many former legislators. So uh, Speaker Tucker certainly is one, even though he's not even, you know, technically a lobbyist. Then you have Joe McPherson, who was the chairman of the Senate Health and Welfare Committee while he was in the legislature. He's the partial owner and administrator of a nursing home in Lafayette. And then there's Sherry Buffington, who whenever she was in the legislature, she was the vice chair of that committee. She was really known for carrying a lot of bills and legislation um, that really helped nursing homes, that helped the industry, and that protected their profits. And she is now a registered lobbyist for the healthcare industry, including a hospital system that owns a nursing home. Interesting. So in, in that, the example of Representative Buffington and a couple of the other ones in the story seem to outline cases where potentially people had their legislative service had kind of served as a jumping off point almost for their later career or maybe was something that made them attractive uh, as a hire for a future career. I mean, uh, Representative Buffington was always kind of a friend to the nursing home industry while she was in the legislature and, and received a lot of contributions from that industry. And you had a couple of other kind of similar examples in the story. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Right. Well, I think another question we wanted to answer when we set out to do this story was whether um, with elected officials knowing they would face term limits, whether they were constantly kind of angling for the next job that um, might come up or, you know, uh, the next way that they could earn a paycheck. So we looked, like I said, at all 99 people who left and A couple of people stood out to us, and we featured them prominently in the story. One was Troy Hebert, 
who, um, when he was in the legislature, he had a history of carrying legislation that was pretty lenient toward um, bar owners and uh, alcohol distributors. And then he went on to become the state's top regulator for alcohol and tobacco. Uh And then there was also Nick Gotro, who really built a reputation in the legislature as a friend to the horse racing industry. And um, whenever he left the legislature, he became a lobbyist for the Louisiana Quarter Horse Breeders Association. Right. And so all of these things, uh, just we should be clear, as far as we know, no one here has done anything illegal. All of these things are are, uh, permissible under Louisiana ethics uh, laws. It's just sort of an illustration of how uh, cozy these kinds of relationships can be. Is that fair to say? Right. And that's part of what makes it so interesting because you look at people like both Nick Gotro and Sherry Buffington, they both immediately registered as lobbyists immediately um, after leaving the legislature. But because they registered as lobbyists for the executive branch and not the legislative branch, what they did was okay by state ethics laws, at least. Okay, well, it's a great story, and everybody should read it. Um, In the meantime, Andrea is going to continue to be looking into these kinds of conflicts. Um, And if anyone has any uh, any anything they think that Andrea should look into on this, um, maybe you can share your contact information with them, Andrea. Sure, I'd love to hear from anybody out there. Uh, My email address is a gallo a g a l l o at theadvocate.com. And a phone number? Uh, 225-388-0302. Okay. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. All right. All right. Joining me now is Ricky Thompson, the soon-to-be-departed business reporter from the New Orleans Advocate. Ricky, thanks for coming by. Gordon, thanks for having me. I'm going to miss you, Ricky. Gordon, I'm going to miss you, too. All right. (laughs) What you podcast listeners may not know is that when Gordon hired me, I was serving beer at the Superdome. That's a true fact. Rescued me from that. Thank you, Gordon, again for that. You might have been better off there. I don't think so. Yeah. Can you get this podcast in France? You know, the last time I was serving beer at the Superdome, the Saints then went on to win the Super Bowl. Wow. Perhaps it's a sign. Perhaps. Well... (laughs) Let's talk about your old friend, Ashton Ryan, and First NBC Bank. You've been covering the collapse of this bank for a couple of years now. Um, and as you've written many times, the biggest bank collapse in America in like the last decade, right? Since the height of the financial crisis. And we had a recent development in the story, which involved Greg St. Angelo, the former lawyer for the bank. What, what happened? So Mr. St. Angelo was the longtime general counsel for First NBC. And the story that we had last week was actually that he has been, he's agreed to a settlement with the FDIC that essentially bans him for life from the banking industry. So he's essentially excommunicated or something like that. That's exactly it. And in doing so, the FDIC had approached him and essentially said that his actions had contributed to the bank's collapse. Um, I forget what the exact language of it was, but bad banking practices essentially that he engaged in. And I spoke with experts about this. And one thing that's unique is that it's not that common for people to be essentially banned from banking. I think last 12 months, we've seen maybe 45, 46 people uh, suffer this fate. But what's unique here is that usually it's a bank officer, a director, not necessarily a bank's general counsel. Right. 
Now, Mr. San Angelo, just to remind everybody, he uh, he, he was involved in both chasing down uh, debtors, right? People who had had loans that were going bad, but he also himself had a tremendous amount of outstanding loans from the bank, right? That's right. I mean, his banking at First NBC made him a non-insignificant customer of the bank, as Mr. Ryan had once said in a civil deposition. And what we've seen over the... What kind of numbers are we talking about? More than $50 million, according to court records. And this is a bank that was known for making big loans. And these were particularly large, especially for someone who worked for the bank. And that's generally unusual, right, to be to, to take out a loan of any, I mean, maybe it's normal to take out a home loan or something like that from the bank that you work for, but taking out a sort of, I don't know how many figures that is, eight, large eight figure loan seems like a lot. Absolutely. And as what we've seen in the time since the banks collapsed, the loans went into default at the time when the bank failed, meaning that he was not keeping current on them. And the loans were later auctioned off along with nearly a billion dollars in First NBC's bad loans. The firm that purchased his loans then sued him. He was the subject of a, a raft of civil lawsuits, and ultimately over the summer he agreed to pay about $30 million to settle the claims. So even though that's a pretty big loss for the bank, or for uh, that's a $20 million loss that someone had to take there, it's not actually as bad as some of the bad loans they had, where the losses were more on the order of People are getting five cents on the dollar on some of these loans, right? Absolutely. And this, I think we saw as part of the review uh, after the bank began to have issues with that, their 10 largest loans were almost $80 million, which is very, very large for a bank of this size. I think in terms of the that bad- That was an average of $80 million. That was an average. Yeah. And in terms of some of these bad loans that ultimately went south after the bank collapsed, we've seen them anywhere from 120 to $150 million in some cases. In one case in particular, uh, $120 million loan was ultimately auctioned for about $3 million, which is just pennies on the dollar. That's a pretty big haircut there. Staggered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about next phases in this case. So Mr. St. Angelo uh, seems to be one of the targets of this investigation. The, I'm talking now about the grand jury investigation led by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, and of course, Mr. Ryan, Ashton Ryan, the bank's founder, is is perhaps their primary target. Um, the next phase in this, at least as far as some, a date we know coming up, is the sentencing of Jeffrey Dunlap. Can you remind us who he is? So Mr. Dunlap is a Slidell contractor who has pleaded guilty to one count of bank fraud uh, as part of a scheme in which he took a line of credit that it from First NBC that exceeded, I think, $22 million based on filing bogus paperwork and bogus numbers at Mr. Ryan's behest. He also had a separate business arrangement with Mr. Ryan, who was trying to develop a large plot of land in St. Tammany Parish, in which Mr. Dunlap's firm would do work on his behalf. Mr. Ryan would not pay him and instead, or primarily, largely not pay him, and instead extend him a line of credit through the bank. So the gist of it is that in that instance, uh, Mr. Ryan is accused of sort of using the bank's assets as his own or to settle his own debts. That's essentially it. And so they're accusing him of a sort of self-dealing here with the bank's money. That's exactly it. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, with First NBC's broader collapse, it's not just a matter of, you know, bank officers are given broad latitude to make their best business decisions. And if it goes south with the best information they had, then they're giving them some discretion on that. But if they 
prosecutors can find examples of ways that they benefited, whether from self-dealing or extending lines of credit like this, that's when criminal charges could step in. And based on the way that they've, the, the guilty plea that Mr. Dunlap took made it clear that they consider Ashton Ryan to be just as guilty as him. In fact, he's, his name is sprinkled throughout, they're not his name, I think they call him Bank Official A, but he's our bank president day there's no question who they're targeting right. as part of this broader probe and it's also very clear that mr dunlap's been cooperating with the grand jury mm -hmm. as it continues to gather evidence and hear evidence and weigh these charges so right now mr dunlap is set for sentencing next month that's correct but we as we see often in these federal cases that could be delayed if in fact they bring charges against Mr. Ryan, which seems almost inevitable at this point. And oftentimes what the federal government will do in those cases is uh, is to delay sentencing while they have this guy testify. And then they might try to seek to wait and have him sentenced after the entire proceeding is over. That's right. So in given that, I guess we should look for a potential delay in the sentencing of Mr. Dunlap sometime next month. Yeah, I think that, that is certainly... Uh most likely how this will happen. And at the same time, opposite the grand jury, which Mr. San Angelo is still a target of, the FDIC continues to investigate. Others, I think, could also face either similar settlements or similar lawsuits from the FDIC that could ultimately seek to ban them from banking. And then in the background, the SEC is continuing to investigate and kind of wait along the river to see what they want to do when this starts to sort itself out. So you've got sort of three parallel probes running at different speeds, more or less. That's exactly it. Okay. Well, um, thanks for coming by to explain this to us, Ricky, and uh, enjoy yourself in Paris. Not too much. I uh, hope you have a great time over there. Thanks, Gordon. I appreciate it. All right. Okay. Joining me last is the Advocates Food Critic, Ian McNulty. Um, Ian, you, uh, a lot of people are doing their sort of top restaurant stories of the year and so forth, but you did a story recently where you kind of took a little different spin on things. So looking back at some of your favorite characters and whatnot in the food industry this year, tell me about the year you had. Yeah, well, Gordon, it's been a, been a busy year, of course. It always is with New Orleans food. There's so much happening, right? There's so many restaurants that are opening. There's so many that are closing. There's like interesting things that happen within some of the old ones. And what are the new trends? I mean, that's the kind of thing we track all year long. And, and believe me, we do some stories at year end that uh, sums up some of that stuff. Because, you know, it's when you take a step back for a minute, like, wow, a lot happened this year. Yeah. But one of the things that I love about covering this beat in this city in particular is the way that you pick up these stories about people that aren't like big headline stories at all, but are about sort of the heart and soul of what goes into this food community. And they're the kind of stories that, you know, the, no one's pitching you on these from a PR company or something like that. You know, you hear them from other people who care about New Orleans food or there's something that develops because, you know, something happened months ago and then something else kind of develops behind the scenes. And it's um, the, the stories that, that people tell me about on the street and that after we write one that that I, you know, really felt was 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 good i get a real boost from when people tell me about it later right. on you know it relates to something that they they feel about new orleans food and this year was it was was just a banner year for these kinds of stories yeah um which i think actually reflects the fact that the new orleans food scene is changing a lot that the the, the restaurant community the food culture itself it is changing it's evolving like a lot of things in our life right the the pace of change seems to be accelerating and so it makes people 
wonder about the things that they really value, and it kind of throws into contrast a little more some of the special things that we have here in New Orleans. Well, before we jump into some of these characters, in what what ways do you see our food culture and our relationship with it changing? Well, the, the pace of change, well, yeah. first of all, just yeah. because everybody has access to so much more information now and what's happening in other cities and, uh, you know, just the influx of new people and new development money, right? Mm-hmm. So all these things are coming into town and, and that's... Uh, you know, by no means am I saying it's all bad or like right. a threat to the culture here. It can have a real rejuvenating effect too, but there's no doubt that, that it's changing. Right. And, you know, the, the old reliables, you know, they're under more competition from other new ideas. I mean, this, a lot of this stuff has to happen, but it's important to also take a step back and say, well, what makes this place special too? What do we really need to keep? Who are the people that we may have forgotten about that we need right. to support? What do we want to reconnect with? What do we like ourselves as New Orleanians that lets right. us know that, you know, we live in this particular place? And I mean, a lot of that comes through food. Well, one of the stories I'll just highlight one of these because I thought it was interesting and you're making me think of it is this story you did about Charlie's Steakhouse, which is one <laughs> of these quirky New Orleans places that maybe, you know, didn't have the great, you know, it wasn't necessarily the top place to sure. get a steak or whatever but it was sort of beloved neighborhood institution yeah this was a weird anniversary story you know like the restaurant anniversary story is kind of fraught like unless it's like you know a hundred years or 50 years something that really makes you think like you know restaurants turn 10 12 15 20 right. all the time charlie's turned 10 this year as the new charlie's right mm-hmm. charlie's had dates back to 1932 mm-hmm. uh old old timey place but it reopened 10 years ago, 2008, after Katrina. The restaurant was gone. I mean, it, it had run its course. Yeah. It was not coming back after Hurricane Katrina. The family that ran it for all those generations was not going to reopen it. Uh, but, fortunately, a guy who lived down the block from the old steakhouse there on Dryad Street, uh, Matthew Dwyer, he bartended there occasionally, just like a pickup shift kind of thing. Right. And he had a good rapport with the owners and he took it on and he took it on in a way that actually allowed it to, uh, reopen to re- he had to rebuild the whole thing. Uh, he brought along enough of the old character of mm-hmm. it because he understood it. He knew the people, he knew the regulars, he knew, he knew the quirks and rhythm of it, but he was also able to recalibrate it for 2008 and beyond, right. you know, in a way that, that trying to do things as they were, uh, back in the heyday of this place, we're not going to fly in the modern. It, yeah. It reminded me that I need to go back there. I, <laughs> I actually haven't been there under the, you know, last time I was there was probably 17 or 18 years ago and i need to try it sure well you know so some things have changed but the feel of the place it feels the same yeah. and that's the important part so after 10 years after you know reopening from its post katrina uh change that was the that was the time to revisit it well let's talk about a couple other ones what, what were a couple of your other favorite characters? uh definitely the story of uh barrow's catfish yeah. um, another old institution yeah, yeah. people pre-katrina will remember uh Barrows was this place, this restaurant that you, you saw on Earhart Boulevard. Right when you went up that ramp, it had this like great neon sign, and it just it looked like there was this funky joint down the side street that you kind of had to know how to get to in Holly Grove. But it served one dish, fried catfish, and man, it was so good. You know, yeah. it was just had this little crackle of of, of cayenne in the and and thick cut fillets and fresh fish. It was delicious. Those are the kind of things that live in people's memories years and years and years after a restaurant closes. And Barrow's Catfish did close, didn't reopen after Katrina, like so many other places. 
But this year, the family behind it, the next generation of the family, reopened it uh, just up the street, not in the same location, but in the same neighborhood, Barrow's Catfish on Earhart Boulevard, now mm-hmm. it's called. And it's uh, a continuation of this long-running family tradition. This family, the Barrow family, they had run the place since 1943. This wow. is a black-owned restaurant. You think yeah. about everything that a, a black-owned business in New Orleans went through from 1943 until 2005. That's a lot. And it's a lot of history. It's a lot of heritage. It's a lot of pride in that family. Next generation, the uh, Barrow-Johnson family brought it back. They figured their kids were ready. Their yeah. kids could contribute to the business. And man, the place has been booming ever since. Yeah. They started off just with catfish like the old place. And um, people have not forgotten. I mean, it was just such a such a, a refreshing and encouraging story to see how, how a community kind of steps up even all these years later. You think Katrina is so far in the past, but yeah. you know, you bring something like that back. Still recovering right from it in some ways. Yeah, too. I mean, absolutely. all these years later. A long shadow. Um, we probably have time to cover one more. You, you covered eight of these kind yeah. of special stories in, in this particular story, which everyone should go back and read. But why don't you, why don't you tell us about one more of these? Uh, the final one is probably hanging out with Jason Gendusa, who uh, runs his family's John Gendusa Bakery. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the reason we got into this was because Binder's Bakery closed right. this year. They were one of the few remaining makers of traditional New Orleans po'boy bread. We sort of went from three major ones to two. Right, yeah. I mean, there are a few other little niche players out there, but really, if we're talking about like a restaurant, a po'boy shop that wants to supply po'boys, you are getting it now from Leidenheimer or John Genduso. And Binder's was the third leg of that stool that closed under sort of a cloud over the summer. And it really revealed to people like, hey, this this whole tradition that we call po'boys in New Orleans is really down to this dwindling, uh, this dwindling Hanging base of expertise. Thread, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nobody's coming to the rescue, right? right. I mean, there's been a lot of bakeries out there that have opened recently, but they're all small, artisanal, sort of old world. That's not what New Orleans po'boy bread is. Right, right. You know? This is a New Orleans invention of the industrial age. And the artisan bakeries, God bless them, I love them so much, but they're not making that kind of bread. So we wanted to look at the places that are. And Jason Gendusa is one of the guys, he's, you know, fourth generation owner wow. he's in there every day I and mean, this, this is a bakery about the size of a po'boy shop and it's just pushing out po'boy bread every single day and it just hanging out with him seeing the process uh meeting his father who's officially retired but hangs out there every day doing stuff <laughs> and showing his son what he's supposed to do it just showed you how the the bonds of so much of our food culture runs through these families and in that case, you know, while the numbers of bakeries are small, when you see the passion and the dedication and the pride that the people who are pursuing this put into it, you feel like it's a good answer. And they've been doing it almost 100 years, too, right? From the beginning of what po' boys were. Yeah, it goes yeah, back to the wow. 20s. Well, uh, some great stories. Everyone should go back and read this. Um, it's terrific stuff. And uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> <Let's> and, uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Let's eat some New Orleans food. Yeah. Thanks for joining me, Ian. Anytime, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week. <laughs>